the most unusual miracle Jesus ever performed has to be the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. Only Mark records this miracle for us, and as we noted last week, what makes it so unusual is that on the surface it looks like Jesus failed on his first attempt. When the man was brought to Jesus, Mark says he spit on the man's eyes, most likely spit on his fingers and then touched the man's eyes, and then asked if he could see anything. The man said he could see, but men looked like trees walking around. So Jesus touched him a second time, laying his hands on the man's eyes, and then the man could see clearly. We can't help but wonder why it took the second touch. Was Jesus so low on power that day that needed two tries to get it right? Surely not. Was this a way to build faith in the blind man? The first touch letting him know that Jesus could do something, and the second touch coming only after the man had faith that Jesus really could heal him? Perhaps, but I doubt it. I'm convinced Jesus healed the blind man in two steps. To illustrate the fact that when our eyes are open to the truth, we seldom see everything clearly all at once. It takes time and several touches to be able to not only see the truth, but to understand the implications of the truth. And this becomes very evident in the text that follows the healing. It looks like Mark has intentionally placed the account of the healing of the blind man right before a picture of Peter's beginning to see who Jesus is, but not yet understanding what it actually means for him to be the Messiah, nor how that truth must affect those who believe in him. We continue in the eighth chapter of Mark, where Peter is beginning to see who Jesus is. And Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. Jesus and the disciples are still traveling in Gentile territory, going north now, walking some 25 to 30 miles to the area around Caesarea Philippi, located at the foot of Mount Hermon. Some 200 years earlier, Caesarea Philippi had been known as Panis, for Pan, the fertility god of mountains and forests who was worshipped at a cave in the area from which an underground river emerged. The name was later changed to Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar and called Caesarea Philippi because it was in the territory given to Herod Philip and to distinguish it from the other Caesarea on the Mediterranean. Anyway, it was to this Gentile area known for its pagan gods that Jesus and the disciples had now come. And as they're walking, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Mark notes that they said John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. Matthew adds Jeremiah to the list, and Luke says some thought he was one of the prophets who had risen from the dead. But people could tell 
Jesus was someone special and that he had a special relationship with God, but their understanding of who he was fell terribly short. So Jesus pressed a little further. But who do you say that I am? Peter, being the most outspoken of the disciples, declared, Thou art the Christ. Matthew records his full statement. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the confession we make when we publicly acknowledge our faith in Christ. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've heard that statement many times. But as far as I can find, only one other person had previously referred to Jesus as the Christ, which is Greek, or the Messiah, which is Hebrew, both meaning the anointed one, and it was Andrew, Peter's brother. After being introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist and spending one day with him, Andrew said to Peter, we have found the Messiah. Andrew's statement, however, was probably more a wish than a conviction and had no bearing on Peter's confession made over two years later. In fact, according to Matthew, Jesus responded to Peter's confession by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. It wasn't Andrew who convinced Peter that Jesus was the Christ. Nor did Jesus ever say he was the Christ, the Messiah. Peter's conviction came from God, from the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who had assured Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the risen Christ. An understanding that allows Simeon to take the infant Jesus in his arms and declare, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Likewise, Peter now had his eyes opened to the identity of Jesus. He was the Christ, the Messiah of promise. He was beginning to understand who Jesus was. But like the blind man who said men look like trees walking around, Peter's view of Christ wasn't clear. That's probably why Jesus warned the disciples to tell no one who he was. They were beginning to see, but they didn't yet understand what it meant to be Christ, nor what Christ must do. Continuing on. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Even though Peter had rightly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus now reaches out for a second touch to enable him to see what being the Christ would mean. He doesn't refer to himself as the Messiah. He never does. It was a title that was loaded with far too much misunderstanding. The Jews were expecting a political Messiah who would establish an earthly kingdom like the one the left-behind premillennial theologians are expecting yet today. But Jesus never intended that. 
He had come to establish a spiritual kingdom that would last not for a thousand years, but for all eternity. To avoid inflaming Jewish misconceptions about the role of the Messiah, Jesus avoided the term, preferring to call himself the Son of Man, a title that did have messianic connotations, but didn't carry the Jewish misconceptions. In fact, Daniel's vision of the Son of Man paints a very clear picture of the spiritual nature of the messianic kingdom. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Like all prophecies, Daniel's vision isn't complete, but it puts us on the right track. The Messiah's kingdom is eternal. Isaiah takes this further by picturing the Messiah as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And Jesus here teaches plainly that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, only to rise again after three days. Now, he has hinted about this before. Early in his ministry, he told the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And to Nicodemus, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When defending the disciples for not fasting, he had said, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And just a few days earlier, he had said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These allusions were in the nature of riddles, and the disciples didn't understand them. So now he begins to teach openly, that he had to die. But that didn't make sense to Peter. He had just come to realize that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Messiah couldn't die. He had to reign. He had to rule. He had to establish the long-expected kingdom. Jesus was, was crazy, talking crazy, and Peter wasn't shy about expressing that thought. Moments earlier, he declared Jesus to be the Christ, but That didn't keep him from rebuking the Christ when he didn't like what he said. And the word for rebuke is a very strong word. The same word used to describe Jesus' rebuke of demons. And Peter clearly rebuked Jesus. Matthew records him as actually saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. His unbelievable audacity should be tempered, however, with an understanding of his love for Jesus. You know, if someone we love announces they're going to die, our first response is usually, no way. You're not going to die. It's more a statement of unbelief than a rebuke. But Peter was rebuking Jesus and had to be confronted. Jesus turned around. 
saw all the disciples standing there with their mouths open and rebuked Peter with some very strong words. Get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan because his words were inspired by Satan. Again, only a moment earlier, Peter had said something that had been inspired by the Spirit of God. Now he's saying something inspired by Satan himself. That should be a warning to us to never let our guard down. Just because someone says something under the influence of the Holy Spirit one minute doesn't mean the next thing he says will also be from God. We must carefully evaluate everything that is said and filter it through the revealed word of God before accepting it as true. And what Peter was saying wasn't true. And it was something Jesus didn't want to hear. In fact, Matthew records Jesus as telling him, you're a stumbling block to me. Satan had tried in the wilderness to get Jesus to accept a path to glory without suffering and death. And now he was trying again through a trusted friend. Sometimes misguided love is the toughest temptation of all. But Jesus couldn't allow himself to be dissuaded. Even though he didn't want to suffer and die, he knew that was the reason he had come to earth in the first place. So he and Peter both had to set their minds on God's interests, not man's. Peter had to have his eyes opened to what Christ must do. And then hopefully all of Jesus' disciples would begin to see what we must do. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It was a big shock to hear that the Messiah would suffer and die. And now Jesus says anyone who would come after him must likewise deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. That wasn't what those longing for the Messiah to come were expecting. They anticipated days of glory, days of victory and celebration and crushing their enemies. They thought their suffering would end when the Messiah came. Here Jesus is talking about self-denial and a cross. I'm sure that didn't sound very messianic to them. And Jesus said this not only to Peter and the other disciples, but to the multitude that had once again been gathering about him. Anyone who would follow him, he said, must be willing to deny themselves and that didn't mean to just give up a day to wander around the countryside listening to what he had to say or to give up a couple of hours on Sunday morning to come to church when we were able to actually come to church. 
Self-denial isn't giving up something. It's giving up self. It's not swearing off chocolate or meat for Lent. It's the renouncing of self as number one. It's taking self out of the driver's seat and putting someone else in control. For those who would follow Jesus, it's yielding to his lordship. It's making his will the deciding factor in what we do, not our will. So the denial of self goes far beyond personal inconvenience. It includes the taking up of a cross. Now, I realize some speak of a particular hardship as the cross they have to bear. But taking up our cross isn't just putting up with hardship or inconvenience. And contrary to how we may feel at the moment, It's not staying home and making personal sacrifices to help stop the spread of a deadly virus. Taking up a cross is taking up the ultimate instrument of humiliation and shame and death. It's being willing to shoulder the scorn and reproach the world hurls at those who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. To take up one's cross is to go beyond self-denial to the crucifixion of self. And that means those who would follow Jesus must be willing to follow him all the way to death and beyond. If we're not willing to do so, if we think our life is something that must be saved, we'll end up losing it. For only in letting go of our claims on this life can we be given eternal life. If we're not willing to renounce our rights in this world, we'll have no place in the world to come. If the things we treasure most are here, we'll have no treasure there. If we're not willing to accept a Messiah who suffers and dies, we'll not have a Messiah who rises from the dead. And if we're ashamed of the Lamb of God who gave himself as a sacrifice for sin, the returning King of kings and Lord of lords will be ashamed of us. Peter could see that Jesus was the Christ, but it would take several touches before he would understand what that really meant. He would not only have to give up his dream of an earthly kingdom, he would literally have to take up his cross, and he did so requesting that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being crucified as had his Lord. As Jim Elliott had said before being killed by the Aka Indians, Peter understood a man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. And Peter came to understand that he would have to do so as well. The question before us today is this. Have we come to see that we too must go to the cross? Not just to worship the one who was hung there 2,000 years ago, but to allow ourselves to be hung there today.
Are we willing to deny self, to take up our cross and follow him? Jesus said that's what it would take to keep from forfeiting our souls. Let's not argue with him. Let's just surrender to him and to his lordship. He knew what Messiah would have to do. And now our eyes have been opened to what those who would be a part of the messianic kingdom must do. The temporary sacrifices we've been called upon to make to preserve the life we love on earth pale in comparison to the sacrifice Jesus said we must make to be part of his eternal kingdom. What we are currently experiencing can serve as a spiritual reality check. It's easy to say we're willing to crucify self, but now we can test our resolve to actually do so. May we willingly do what needs to be done, both for the sake of this world and for the promise of the world to come. Let's pray. Father, like Peter, it's hard for us to hear the words that we must take up a cross. Sometimes we say it loosely in the midst of, of worship or fellowship with Christians. But when push comes to shove, it's very hard to take up a cross, to deny self. May we take seriously our call to follow in Jesus' footsteps. May we be willing to do whatever needs to be done to secure the blessings of heaven, both here and in the hereafter. May our eyes be firmly fixed on the promise of the coming Lord of lords and King of kings. And may we long for the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. It's in anticipation of his coming that we come with confidence to you this day, asking you to bless us, to guide us, to use us, to make us instruments of your peace. And we ask this in Christ's name.